We come into Second Peter with uh, a blessing uh, that is requested by Peter upon them in verse 2. It says, grace and peace be multiplied to you. And we can easily take this very lightly as just a greeting. Have he identified himself and who his, the recipients are? And we have a very uh, nice description uh, uh, that uh, reminds us of our oneness in Christ. We looked at that two weeks ago. We come now to uh, some of the early instruction as he lays out and prepares for uh, us to engage false teaching. And to do that well, we need to be established ourselves in our faith. And that's what this first chapter is largely, especially the, these next few verses from 2 all the way through 11, are going to really focus in on. And we are going to be taking several weeks to explore this. We're going to be looking at grace and peace this week and next week, uh, not maybe in the way you think of, but uh, we're going to explore how they develop and what works there, and then we're going to see the development over um, three or four weeks following that. And so we have it kind of laid out for us here for several weeks. When we talk about the word grace, we recognize this is God's favor that we do not deserve. It is being granted something uh, different than mercy. Mercy is withholding something we do deserve, usually punishment. Grace is receiving something that you do not deserve. And it is um, usually, in terms of divine origin, is that unmerited favor, the, having the favor of God being placed upon you. And when we think about that, we often say, well, having God's favor means that I'm getting a lot of stuff that I want, and that'll make my life comfortable and happy. And that's the, the, what most Christians I encounter define the concept of grace with. That if, God, if I have a favorable view from God, that therefore I should live in luxury and have, uh, I'm, I'm content because I have no wants. Uh, <laughs> that's our definition. But it's kind of interesting that people who have no wants uh, because they all aren't content. Kind of strange, isn't it? And so we come to this concept of grace, and I want to really take just a couple of examples to try to zero our mind in on a biblical concept of grace by just looking at two um, of these that um, hopefully will give us a better handle on it. The first one I'm going to look at is, is the mother of our Lord, uh, Mary. And her, when she was approached to be informed of her upcoming pregnancy uh, by the Holy Spirit, that she was a highly favored one. And we come into this, and this is that word grace. It's the same word, highly favored. You are, you are highly graced. God has looked well upon you, and you are uh, favored. You are his favorite, if you will. You are his highly favored. And again, let's remember that this is unmerited favor. That's what grace is. You are highly favored. That is not because you have deserved or earned it, but by God's grace, by God's goodness, by God's eye, uh, by his choice, he has determined to favor you. And so you have been selected uh, among the virgins of Israel to, uh, and of course of the line of David, to bear the Holy One of Israel. And when we think of that, we say, well, that was a great blessing on her life. I just want to remind you what it did to her. It complicated her life extraordinarily. To receive God's grace is not something that I can just sit down now and coast through life. Rather, it is you are graced to serve. And that service to mankind is costly. And so here she is, going to be found with child, not married. Uh, and the circumstances around that, the, the, the having to have divine intervention to preserve her, her engagement to Joseph, and so that God has to reveal that to Joseph as well. We have all of the struggles that would have been around that and the assumption that they had prior to being wed to have engaged in, in, in 
intercourse and, and all the, the innuendo that would have gone around that to then have to travel to Bethlehem uh, from their home in Nazareth and to go there in a time when there was no place. And, and we, we think that, well, highly favored means I have comfort. And from what I can tell, that wasn't Mary's life. And then she had the incredible hard task to raise a perfect child. Yeah, think about that. Can you imagine a 12-year-old straightening you out? Hey, I'm just doing my father's business. Why are you all upset, Mom? Where else would I be but in my father's house? Um, and, and when we read through the New Testament, we say, well, Mary treasured these things in her heart. She, she stored these things up in her heart. And then at the other end of all that, and, and you're at this wedding, and it's like, you know, can you help out? And he's like, hey, my time's not come, woman. I say, well, the, and then she says, well, just do whatever he says. Um, and the recognition that this was not an easy thing for the highly favored one. But she had an incredible opportunity to serve God and to serve man, and it was not comfortable. It was not easy. And even to be there at the cross and to see her son uh, and the son of God die on the cross, to be involved in that process, to be there and hear the words uh, spoken to John, behold your mother, behold your son, and, and of transferring that authority, the oldest child, not to his next sibling, but to John, a powerful time. And from what we know that of Mary's life from that point forward, she was cared for by John uh, and, and died in Ephesus. And so we find that um, what a hard life. And yet she was the highly favored one. You see, we have a concept of grace that, that is all, um, you know, warm fuzzies. And we don't think of grace, I am favored by God to serve. That that is what God, God's favor is, is now you're going to have multiplied opportunity to serve my kingdom, to serve mankind, uh, and to be ambassadors of me, and in her case, to, to uh, be the, uh, the vessel by which God would bring the Messiah. Highly favored. Um, not many of you would have signed up for that. If you knew the whole story, the whole end. The other example that I want to give you to try to just set a different framework of thinking around the word grace is Paul. And Paul, uh, whether it was a natural thing or something that was developed because of the beatings that he took, uh, had a physical problem that he asked God to remove. Can you just remove that? Some people think it was his sight, his eyesight uh, that was damaged, probably in the stoning. Uh, whatever it was, uh, Paul doesn't really identify it, but he asks and he says, you know, can you remove this infirmity from me? This thorn in the flesh is how he describes it. Can you remove this from me? And ask God three times. And then after asking God three times to remove an infirmity, what was the, re the, the answer? My grace is sufficient for you? The answer was, I'm not going to remove the affirmity because it reminds you and is the mechanism by which you are accessing the grace of God. That infirmity is the means of my grace. My grace is sufficient for you is God's answer. As you live with that infirmity, you are tied in to my grace. And you say, no, grace would be getting healed. Not on that occasion. God says, you want to explore my grace? I will sustain you every day in your infirmity, not from your infirmity. Wow. That's how I grow in grace? So next time you think, I want to grow in grace, think about that a little bit. And it's probably not what you had in mind. 
For Paul to grow in grace meant you don't get to be healed. You're going to have to live with this chronic pain or, or, or disability, whatever it was, and you're going to be depending upon me, and I will take care of you every day. Instead of saying, I could just heal you today, God could have done that. I could heal you today, and you could be reminded years later, oh yeah, you know, God healed me back then. Or I could just take care of you every day and be reminded that I am gracious every day to you with your infirmity. And so when we talk about grace, I want those to set up those two examples that are really strong examples about grace that we kind of ignore when we come to a passage like this where Peter says, grace be multiplied to you. <laughs> Do you want more of God's grace? I hope so. Peter wanted you to have multiplied amounts of God's grace. But when we approach a passage like that, a statement like this, we think that means that our lives are going to be comfortable. No, your lives are going to be designed by God to serve his kingdom and his people better. That is the highest expression of God's grace, is to equip you to serve his kingdom and his people better. This is the highest calling of man, is to bring glory to God. How can I bring glory to God? And if God gives me opportunities to glorify him, that is grace. I don't deserve that opportunity. And if we have that view now coming to this passage, we begin to understand the concept of grace. So now grace be multiplied to you means I better be well prepared to serve his kingdom and his people. And that's really what he's going to be talking about for a lot of this passage, including we're going to actually back up to verse 1 as well today. And so grace and then peace. The peace be multiplied to you. Um, and this is a common phrase. And we often think, well, that means that I'm going to have this, again, this easy life of peacefulness. That whether it's no noise, uh, whether it's no aggravations, no frustrations, um, no, no strain on any relationships, however you want to approach it, most of us have those kinds of concepts of peace. That I'm going to sit here in front of a fire with a hot chocolate with my feet up in my robe on my favorite book, and that's peace, and no children crying at me, right? i got to include that for a few of you. And, uh, and no one knocking on the door, no telephones, no, none of that. I'm just, that's a peaceful, wonderful night. And now, you know, you're sitting here going, oh, Pastor Jeff, talk about that. Because um, you know that's not a reality most of the time. Uh, and the fact is that that really isn't all that's involved here in peace. And again, let's go to example in the Sermon on the Mount, Christ Jesus said, yeah, I'm trying to find something that's very common knowledge. Uh, blessed are the peacemakers. What is involved in that to make peace? Well, we want peace multiplied. That means we're going to be engaged in this process of peacemaking. And what is involved in that is I'm going to have to uh, approach people with their need for the God, for Jesus Christ, which means I have to call out sin. I have to take the the initiative to overcome these breaks in these gaps in the relationship, what did it require for the, the relationship between God and man to be corrected, to be fixed, to be at peace instead of at war? It took sacrifice. But you don't think of sacrifice when you think of the word peace, do you? You see, again, we view it from a very selfish perspective uh, without thinking about what it costs. And so when peace is multiplied to us, this is the work of Christ on the cross to, to, to bridge that gap, to be that mediator between two parties. In the case of Christ, between God and mankind. In, in your case, to be that mediator uh, sometimes between yourself and others, sometimes between two other parties, and it's not really a fun process, uh, and sometimes it can be quite exhausting, frankly, to produce peace. How exhausting was it on Christ to produce peace between men and God? Oh, the angels came at the birth of Christ and saying, peace on earth, goodwill toward men, and that is the end result. How do we get there? 
How do we get to that place where peace was offered to all men? By the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And we don't associate peace with sacrifice. But we ought to. Even in our common experience, we should understand that when nations fight, where do we get to the point of peace? Well, it requires a lot of sacrifice. How many people sacrifice themselves for peace in various wars in history? Not just American history, but in all the nations. There's a great sacrifice. And, and you might say, well, out of that war, out of that sacrifice, what was the goal and aspiration? Well, hopefully, of at least one party there was peace. And if it is necessary to sacrifice and compromise, you might use the word compromise, to make peace, I will give that sacrifice. But we don't think of, we don't associate sacrifice and peace. And so I want to take these two words and I want to give us a different understanding of them than maybe our selfish perspective that this is just a common blessing, grace and peace be multiplied to you, as though that was something that I don't have to work at. Uh, I am I'm convinced that peace is related, it's biblically, almost always to sacrifice, to surrender, to con- to. to uh, putting down my pride and picking up humility and being the peacemaker. That this is a blessing of God. Blessed are the peacemakers. And peacemaking requires sacrifice, as illustrated by our own Savior, Jesus Christ. And that grace involves this uh, serving God's kingdom and, and putting myself again in this place <laughs> that, that maybe is not so comfortable. With that in mind now, we're going to look at four areas of uh, initial uh, things that we want to address. We're going to look at two of them this week, two next week, so I'll probably have to do the same introduction next week, right, for the other half that aren't here. (laughs) But we're going to look at it. And so we're going to look at two things that we're going to have to be multiplied. So grace and peace be multiplied. That means we're going to increase in in a very high rate, right? Because if we want to increase slowly, it would be added to you. But that's not what Peter wants. He wants grace and peace multiplied in your life. And so we're going to go from one to another. We're going to just do on, on, on huge scale jumps here from one to another to another. And I'm going to look at four areas that he uses. And this is pretty simple because we're just looking at the repetitive words. This is not uh, some great insight on my part. Uh, we are simply looking at repetitive themes here in these verses, and we're not even going to be able to handle all of them today with these two. We're just going to look at the, them in two verses, but we could go all the way into the chapter and see them repeated again and again and again because they are uh, necessary building blocks to be able to be uh, vessels of God's grace. And I think both Mary and Paul are the great example. I want to be a vessel I want to carry God's favor, and that might lead to some difficulties and and to some uncomfortable situations, and I want to be an agent of God's peace, a vessel of God's grace and an agent of God's peace. So here's where we're going to begin. We are going to have to be multiplied from righteousness to righteousness where we want to begin. Let's back up in verse 1. It says, to those who have obtained the last half of the verse, like precious faith with us, by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so we have here a recognition. We've already studied this now. This is the third week I've gone in and read this verse again to you. And I'm picking up another uh, aspect that we really haven't developed in the other two passages. And that is the righteousness of Christ. And so we have a like precious faith. We have a like standing or position before God based not upon our own righteousness, but the righteousness of Christ. And so we talk about that our position before God spiritually is one of inherited or impugned righteousness. That is, it's not our own. We are, have access to heaven. We have a restored relationship with God based upon the righteousness of Christ alone. It is his righteousness that we confess Uh, before God when he says, why should you enter my perfect heaven? 
Why should I bring you into my glory? And our statement is, well, not by anything that I have done, but by him, by the righteousness of Christ, I stand today. And so when you look at me, see what has been imputed, what has been applied to me, which is the righteousness of Christ. And so he says, because it is the righteousness of Christ is the foundation of our salvation, anyone who trusts in that are on equal footing. In other words, the Jews didn't have a greater access to Jesus' righteousness than the Gentiles because it wasn't their righteousness that evolved at all. And so to come into this right relationship with God is founded upon the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so we trust in him and his perfect life, his perfect sacrifice, and the power of the resurrection, and his place as mediator for us in heaven. That is the foundation. That is in whom we trust for our salvation. And so we don't want to muddy those waters. We want it crystal clear that the only way you're getting to heaven is by the righteousness of Christ. That is what puts us in equal standing. That is what puts us in uh, that position of being heirs of the kingdom of God, of being accessed to God, of being right with God, uh, to be accepted by God is a term I like to use, uh, versus being pleasing to God. And we're going to differentiate those two tonight, tonight, today. It's still morning. Uh, and so we want to be accepted by God. The only way you're going to be accepted by God is by trusting in the righteousness of Christ applied to you. That we are the benefactors of that. We are the recipients of that. We are in the passive sense there because Christ has done it all for us. And so we come to that and say, it's not by my works of righteousness, which I have done, but it's his works of righteousness that he has done that I stand before God seeking to be accepted by him. And this is the beginning of it. This is God's grace extended to you. This is our salvation, correct? We're okay with that. But that's not the end of that. If that is the conclusion, is the initiation, it is, it is wonderful that if, if you come to that point in your life where you trust in Christ's righteousness, it's been applied to you, you're accepted by God, and you say, well, isn't that enough, Pastor? Well, I don't know. Was it enough for your child to be born into your family and never fed and never active, never apart, never obeying, never helping? Not even acceptable for my grandkids. I found out they actually helped scrub the floors just like their mommies did when they were that age, three, four, five years old, scrubbing the floors with mom on Saturday mornings. I, would it be acceptable? Would it be pleasing for us to give birth to a child, have them carry our name, but never obey, never help, never participate? Well, no, you would say that's not right. That's not good. So it is with our salvation being born in the family of God is based upon the righteousness of Christ. You had nothing to do with it other than just accept being the recipient of God's favor and accepting it by faith. And I don't know about you, but I, I would never describe accepting a gift as any work. Didn't pay for it, didn't wrap it, didn't give it, didn't provide it, just accepted it. Don't call that work. And so we come now, so there's something that we need to add to that. And this is what Peter tells us. We're going to multiply the grace of righteousness. So God has given us righteousness by which we have a, a, a position before him equal to that even of Simon Peter. But I want you to jump down now to verse 3 to see how this righteousness is to be multiplied in your life by grace and peace. Again, sacrifice, and maybe a little bit of suffering, and certainly service, by sacrifice and service. As his divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. That word godliness, you need to connect to the concept of righteousness. And he's going to pick up again this uh, several places throughout this chapter. And so we go from receiving a position through the righteousness of Christ, that I stand here on a foundation of Christ's righteousness, but we also recognize, I hope, that that calls us to a life of righteousness. That we are called from our justification into our sanctification, that we are becoming more like Christ every day. That we are walking in his truth. That we are 
obedient, we are godly, that we are living out the righteousness that we didn't earn, and now we want to demonstrate a commitment to that. We want to demonstrate that our thankfulness for what Christ has done for us, uh, and we can never repay that fully, right? We know that's a debt we can't fully repay. But I can at least communicate my thanksgiving by walking in godliness. And he's even given me the strength, the power, it says there, to do that. As the power, it says, divine power, that's God's power, is given to us all things that we need. You have everything you need to live a godly life. God has provided that by the righteousness of Christ, he, and you trust in that, part of that positional uh, reality now in your life is that God grants you all these favors. They're not party favors, they're godliness favors. He has given you his Holy Spirit. He is to guide you and direct you, convict you if necessary. He has given you his word, his people around you, uh, and, and the power that is there with the Holy Spirit uh, specifically. When Acts 1 says you shall see power after the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And so you have the capacity now to live a godly life. You have everything you need is at your disposal. But it doesn't mean you have access to those things. But I want you to notice God has favored you by giving you everything you need to live righteously and godly in this present world as we look for the blessed hope. So you have all the tools necessary. And the problem isn't God's side of the equation, the problem is, are we picking up the tools and using them? Or are we resisting the Holy Spirit? Or are we walking with the Holy Spirit? Are we quenching Him? Or are we listening and sensitive to Him? He's there if you're a follower of Jesus Christ. If you've trusted His righteousness, the Holy Spirit is there. But that doesn't mean that He has permission from you to be active in your life. And so everything we need for godliness, God has given us. We have his word. Do we know it? Do we read it? Do we meditate on it? The psalmist tells us, uh, read Psalm 119, I know it's long, but read it. God's word is the mechanism by which God has favored me and he gives me the information I need to please him. I don't have to go through the world and through the life day by day and say, I wonder if this is something that pleases God. I shouldn't have that question in my mind. Because if I know God's word, I know what pleases him. I don't have to question that. I don't have to wonder. I don't have to sit there and, and contrive, well, is this it's legal. My country says it's legal. Well, the country says a lot of things are legal that are displeasing to God. You can legally go get a divorce. Does God like it? Is it please him? No. God hates divorce. And so these questions of what's legal and then what's ethical, it's like, why are we shooting for as low a level as possible in the area of godliness? When God has equipped us with the Holy Spirit, with his word, for the highest level of godliness. Why aren't we targeting that and saying, I want to be Christ-like. I want to be what the Word says, just like God in my walk. Wow. Is that going to involve sacrifice? You better believe it every day. Is that going to involve service? Yes, every day. To be Christ-like. And when I say, well, that's impossible, Pastor. That's not what this says. This says that God has favored you, and if you want it multiplied in your life, that you're going to have to trust in Christ, not only his righteousness for salvation to get entry into heaven, but to walk in a manner worthy of that calling, worthy of that position, that God has favored you. And every opportunity you have to say, am I going to walk today like a believer? Or am I going to walk today like the world? Am I going to please my father? Am I going to please these knuckleheads around me on this planet? That's the question. 
And every day we have the power to choose differently and because we have been equipped with the Holy Spirit. We have his word. We have his people around us. And we have that uh, access, that prayer access to God. If any of you lacks wisdom, what are you supposed to do? Well, just give up. I'll never figure it out. I'll never be as smart as them. And by the way, wisdom doesn't require intelligence. Not a lot of it, anyway. It does require some. Not, not your IQ. Not based on that. If you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all men freely. Prayer. Is prayer part of your concept of the grace and peace of God being multiplied in your life? So that we can go from being dependent upon the righteousness of Christ as the foundation of salvation, firmly and, and rejoicing in that, and realizing what a wonderful thing. I, could, I couldn't earn it. I couldn't deserve it. God did it for me. How exciting. What that's grace. But you know what also is grace multiplied? Is saying, I'm going to live that. I'm going to get up every day and say, I want to be more like Christ today than I was yesterday. And you've heard me pray that sort of prayer here on a regular basis that help us to be more like you this week than last week as we leave this place. And the concept there is that I want to be grace multiplied in my life that I move from, from standing on the righteousness of Christ to building on the righteousness of Christ with personal godliness. As an expression of my rejoicing and my walking in the grace of God. And remember, grace as sacrifice, grace as service, rather than grace as selfishness. Are you walking in grace? Do you really want grace multiplied in your life? You're going to have to recognize you stand in the righteousness of Christ, but you also are called and given everything you need to be godly, to be righteous, not to gain an entry into heaven, not even to guarantee your entrance into heaven. That's all the rights of Christ. But so that when you arrive in heaven, you will hear something similar to well done. You are a good child who has demonstrated your thanksgiving by obedience, by participating in the kingdom, by doing more than just sitting around, eating and drinking and sleeping. It's okay when you're an infant. But hopefully we grow into maturity and recognize, listen, I'm part of this family. I should be helping out. If we're part of the family of God, then we should be living godly lives. And so we want to see grace and peace multiplied in us. We want to see it move from, from, uh, <laughs> from righteousness to righteousness. We're not... We're not saying this isn't sufficient. We're saying this is completely sufficient. And now, as an expression of thanksgiving, I want to see it a reality in my daily living. I'm going to move from capital R righteousness to personal righteousness. And the grace of God and the peace of God is multiplied in that. And you move from that and we're seeing godliness in our life. So that's the first area is Personal guidelines. Do you see righteousness going on in your life? Because that's going to be necessary if you really want this happening in your life, that grace and peace is multiplied. Peter wants it for you. He wants it for all the saints. We should be in, uh, in, invoking God to bring it into our lives. But please recognize that doesn't mean you can, we're just going to have coasting along in, in a, a luxury uh, mode of transportation um, you see, to me, that's just a cruise ship. So. <laughs> um, but for you, it might be something else that you'd rather be in. But, uh, it, but rather, it is that I am a participant here, and now I should see righteousness in my life, godliness. The second word that we're going to be exploring out of the four, uh, having understood grace and peace multiplied, I want to multiply sacrifice and service as an evidence of the favor of God and being an agent of his peace is again repeatedly given to us. In verse 2, immediately after grace and peace will be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of, our, of Jesus our Lord. Do you notice the same turn of phrase, if you will? In verse 1 is the righteousness 
of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. And in verse 2, it's the knowledge of God and Savior Jesus Christ. And so we uh, are Jesus our Lord. And so we have to grow from the righteousness of Christ into godliness. We have to then recognize that in the knowledge of God, which I've somewhat referenced already, uh, our grace and peace is going to be multiplied, but let's keep reading. Verse 3. As his divine power is given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue. And so now we have going from knowledge, in the knowledge, to through the knowledge of him who called us. And so, uh, again, grace and peace in the knowledge of God and our, of Jesus, our, our Lord. Focusing on the Savior in righteousness, focusing on Lord in knowledge, and then of the calling of him, of Jesus Christ, uh, in verse 3. And so we find that we are called to knowledge. And so we have to have a knowledge, an, an informed mind over the truths of who Jesus is. And so we have this knowledge uh, of him as our Lord. That we're going to recognize that he is God. <laughs> and Peter's now repeated that twice. If you ever wonder, did, did Peter listen when Jesus said before, you know, me and the Father are one? The Father and I, I and the Father. I and the Father are one. God used the right grammar there. Was Peter listening? Oh, he listened very well, and he fully understood what that meant, and that's why he says, Jesus is God. Our God and Savior Jesus Christ. These aren't two separate people. Paul's, or Peter's mind is the same person. He's our God. He's our Savior. He's our Lord. He is the Messiah. He is Jesus. So, we're gonna in, so we find that in the knowledge of that, we are introduced into the grace uh, and peace with God. And certainly we recognize the necessity of people hearing and knowing the name of Jesus. And Romans tells us, how can they believe on him and whom they have not heard? There has to be a, a concept, a knowledge that Jesus Christ was sent to die on the cross, was God incarnate, lived a sinless life, died an innocent one, who, but for other people, and became sin for us, he who knew no sin. And so they have to hear that message. They have to hear that truth. They have to hear about Jesus. And one good example, I think, of this is a guy, Apollos. And, uh, you know, he was the, in, the whole, in the region there, heard John the Baptist preach, uh, knew that there was going to be a Messiah coming, but somehow he got removed from that region before Jesus actually showed up on the scene, before that baptismal event of Jesus' baptism and the voice and the spirit. So all three present in one place going on there, one of several places where that occurs. And so we find that he missed that. He was transported away for some reason, whether it was business or whatever it was, personal reasons. He, was, he didn't, but wherever he went, he preached the same message as John the Baptist. Um, and a couple, a man and wife, here, this is, this is a great preacher. He's preaching grace, preaching repentance. He's preaching the truth. He just doesn't quite have all the information. Now, all those who were baptized by John for repentance were expecting a Messiah. He taught the Messiah. He taught the Christ. And, and how far he taught that in terms of his deity, in terms of his lordship, in terms of all of, the, the, all of this that's added to that concept of Christ, and certainly his name, Jesus, he had to be explained to us. So they take him aside and they, privately and they say, listen, you didn't get the whole story. He, the Messiah did come. John the Baptist baptized. His name is Jesus. And, do, 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 do. and we can go through the whole gospel story. Can you imagine you know, Cohen Priscilla having an opportunity to sit down with Apollos and just share with him all of that and explain to him more of, of the name and the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And with that knowledge, then he just goes and he is an extraordinary preacher. Many people want to attribute the book of Hebrews to him as one of the possible authors um, there, but certainly he has a, a wonderful ministry 
uh, and kind of is involved there in that region that we often associate with Paul's missionary journeys uh, in later years. And so we find this necessity to, to have a, a perfect knowledge, a perfected knowledge, a complete knowledge. Is, by perfect, I don't mean you know every, but complete. We have a complete knowledge of who Jesus is. That he is the Son of God. We need to know that. People need to know that. And it can be demonstrated. It can be proven. And those that have tried to disprove it have been dumbfounded by how much there is. That he was the perfect. He wasn't just a good teacher, a good example to follow. He wasn't a Gandhi. He wasn't any of those. He wasn't a mother. He wasn't any of those. He was God in the flesh. And so we have our entire salvation built upon this person, Jesus Christ, who is God and his sacrifice. And certainly in the beginning of our faith, we need to know who Jesus is because we're trusting in his righteousness. Therefore, we have to know who he is. And that's why we call those truths cardinal doctrines. If you deny these truths, you're a heretic. You deny the virgin birth. You deny the deity of Christ. You deny the miracles. You deny the resurrection. You deny all these things about who Jesus is, that he is 100% man, 100% God. We call you a heretic. Because if you, are, if you fail in knowledge of Jesus Christ, you have no Savior. You have no grace and peace with God. It is that critical, that knowledge. And so it is in that, in that truth of who Jesus Christ is, and there is not, and that's not the extent of it. That's not the, the, the fullness of it. It is just this rudimentary knowing of who Jesus is and then can grow into that wisdom that then makes him your Lord. We go from this knowledge of him as our Savior and yes, all those things I listed off are necessary. You can't say, I believe in Jesus, I just don't think he was God. Well, then you're lost. You're hellbound. So all those, while I call them rudimentary, doesn't mean they're not necessary. They're the beginning. But we are called then to God has given us all things, praying life of God is through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue. And again, that concept of virtue, of glory. And so we are called to go from this rudimentary knowledge of the Gospels, of, of the life of Christ, to understand the fullness of Christ, and, and to increase our knowledge of him day by day and through him. And now we're going to expand into other knowledge. Now I'm going like, Wow, I can go to the Old Testament and find Christ everywhere. Jesus is everywhere. From Genesis all the way through to Malachi, Jesus is everywhere. And, and you can read the book of Hebrews, you can read the book of Romans, you can read, all these guys are quoting out of the Old Testament because they see Jesus everywhere. You can't miss it. I mean, you look at the temple and it says, well, there's this table of showbread, all these articles. Oh, this is Jesus, 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 Jesus. And the guy in Hebrews, like the priesthood, oh, this is Melchizedek, Genesis, that's Jesus. Pictures of Jesus everywhere. Not just the sacrificial lamb, but so much more than that. And Jesus himself declares that, that not only is he the, the sacrifice, not only is he the provider of salvation, but he shares so much, all the promises of God, Corinthians says, are yes in Jesus Christ. That as we explore Jesus, we explore everything. Because it all points to him. It all brings us into a deeper, fuller knowledge. And now, it, 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 now I share in his what? His glory and virtue. Now virtue is, is different than godliness. Okay, Virtue is, is godliness um, has an aspect more of righteousness. And virtue has more of a, an attachment to um, just a better quality, a high quality, a, a moral, um, not just, a, just moral goodness that's often associated with godliness, and, and maybe I'm diminishing godliness a little bit too much, but we're called to the, to the glory and the virtue of Christ, the goodness that is there. And so as I want to move from the knowledge, the rudimentary knowledge of who Jesus is and what he did for me, I also want to explore the concepts that bring me to the understanding 
the one who called me, and his glory and virtue by which he called me. And I can explore that as I explore God's word with the help of the Holy Spirit and with good teachers around me, uh, not just those that tell me what my itching ears want to hear, but the ones that make me feel bad sometimes. Um, and we explore that, and we investigate, and we discover, and now we're going multiplied grace and peace into these areas of glory and virtue as we seek a deeper and broader and fuller knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And I think it's no mistake that we went from the Savior in verse 1 about equal standing to the Lord because now he has more and more control in my life. We can say I surrender my life fully to Jesus Christ back here, but the fact is our sanctification is really a process of our surrendering. It's continual. I'm going to keep surrendering, keep surrendering, keep surrendering. Well, what are you surrendering yourself to? This is not just an act of the will I'm calling you to. This is an act of investigation, of studying Christ and knowing his word and bringing it into our life. As I move towards godliness, I also want to increase my knowledge of him. And this is what Paul tells the Ephesians. He says, listen, God has given you pastor, teachers, evangelists, that, and all for what? that we can serve one another till we reach unity in our faith and knowledge. This is critically important to Paul. It's important to Peter. He's going to repeat it again and again here. Um, why? Because false teachers are going to attack this knowledge. Not only are they going to attack the rudimentary elements of who Christ is, I mean, they're going to attack that. Well, he wasn't really fully human. He just looked like a human to you. He didn't really fully die. He didn't, he, he, he swooned on the cross, whatever. I think you studied that in Sunday school a little bit this morning. I was doing my own reading while that was going on, but I'm pretty sure he talked about that. All these things, and they want to attack that, certainly, but they also want to attack this out here, the glory and virtue that is in your calling, and they want to poison that water. And so we want to be clear that we know this stream of truth so that I can stand against these false teachers, but also so that I can see the glory of Christ and his virtues um, coming out of me by recognizing he is the Lord of my life. I am here to serve him, period. And everything is related to that. And I, I can, not just in terms of seeing his glory in the creation around me, but seeing his glory in the work within me. Since I used Mary as the example of grace, of highly favored one, um, uh, we, we think, well, think of the virtue and glory of being, I mean, you could hear it in Mary's song. She says, My, I'm a blessed one. Yes, I have going to have all these problems. I'm going to have to be doing a lot of explaining. I'm going to have a lot of people looking nastily at me. I'm going to go through all of this. And, and, and Jesus even, God even through the angels warned her about what's going to pierce her heart and, and all, all that. But you know what? There was virtue and glory in the privilege, and she spoke those words to Elizabeth. And that's Mary, what we describe as Mary's song. And that, that recognition, oh, that we would grow in our knowledge, that we would see that he who called us is glorious and virtuous, and I'm going to be like that. I want that, that glory that involves sacrifice, because peace is being multiplied, grace is being multiplied, it involves service. I want to see that glory and virtue, but it is ac accessed by knowledge of him. Are we increasing our knowledge of Christ? I keep studying scripture and studying scripture, and I say, Pastor, you're an old Old guy now, you've you got to know it all. And you've preached through the entire Bible, verse by verse, verse by verse. You told us that what was it, a few years ago. Um, I reached that milestone of having done that. And I'm like, I'm not done. In fact, my sermons are taking on less and less scripture and taking longer and longer to preach. You see, knowing him more doesn't mean you see less. You see so much more. And I think the second time through is a lot better than the first time I went through it. See how blessed you are? <laughs> Grace and peace be multiplied to you. 
Oh, that we would recognize the knowledge of Christ. Not just of him in terms of him saving us, but also being our Lord. That we move forward in that and then pick up that calling to, by his glory and virtue that we would share in that. And so we have an opportunity, he says in verse 4, to be partakers of the divine nature. It's kind of in the middle of the verse there. That we are partaking in the very virtues, the very glory of Christ. And Paul, in some of his later writings at the, toward the end of his life, kind of described that. I, I want to I be like Christ. I, I just want to rise up out of the mundane, and I want to I wanna move in this area that uh, I want to participate in his sufferings. I want to... Uh, uh, I don't want to miss the resurrection at all. I want to grow in that. And, and he says, I haven't yet attained, but I keep pressing on. He tells the Philippians, right? I keep pressing on. This is Paul very late in his life of ministry and study. says, I still haven't gotten it. I want to keep pressing on. Oh, that we'd have that view of our knowledge of Christ. That we don't grow bored with it, but we realize if, if I'm bored, it's because I'm playing in the shallows when I should be out there swimming in waters over my head. Now, I fear too many Christians are complacent with playing in the kiddie pool. And the kiddie pool gets really boring if you stay in there when you're 40 years old. But that's where we're content to be. And we think, I know everything because I know, I know this kiddie pool. And there is an ocean of knowledge about Christ out there. And you're bored because you're stuck in a kiddie pool in your mind and heart. Oh, we would go out there and jump in there and recognize there is so much here to study and to explore and then to bring into my life so that I can partake of divine nature. That's called being like Christ. Not just in terms of behaving like Christ, but truly being like Christ. Wow. To partake of the divine nature. For most of us, we think of Christ's likeness in terms of our behavior, not of our being. I want to do things. What would Jesus do? I want to do the things. Yes, that's righteousness and that's there. But we want to grow to the point that I want to be like Christ. That my attitudes, my perspectives on everything are Christ-like. That, I, that, that my very nature is like his. And again, we see the need for grace and peace to be multiplied to us in this regard, that we might serve his kingdom and that we might be agents of his peace that often requires sacrifice. How can you do those things? Well, they're a lot easier to do if we are like him in our being. The way we get there is by our thinking, not by our feeling. How do you think like Jesus? Well, you got to, Know him. Know his word. Know his nature. Know his glory. Know his virtue. Oh, that we would recognize the knowledge is the beginning of that discovery of Christ as our Lord, master of our life. And as we grow in that, it becomes that we are partakers of his nature. Wow. I can lay hold of the glory and the virtue of Jesus, I'm called by it, and I can participate in it. But it will require something of me. And we're going to see knowledge come up again, obviously in godliness too, by the way, when we get down to uh, verses 5, 6, 7. So we're going to be revisiting some of these in an order. Uh, just as we talked about faith a couple weeks ago, several weeks ago, um, we're going to see all of these are going to be placed to us in their developmental order. We're going to be studying those. But these 
this idea of multiplying grace and peace uh, that we are going to move from Christ's righteousness to my godliness. Uh, I'm going to develop it. I'm going to move from a knowledge, a rudimentary knowledge of Christ as my Lord to a knowledge of Christ to a degree that makes me partake of his nature, not just his doings. Not just going to act like Christ. I'm going to be like Christ. And that affects our heart's desire. It affects our thinking, our attitudes, all of these things. Because now I have a totally different perspective on why I'm even here and what I am and who I am. And those are two different things. That I am now a vessel, like Mary was a vessel, as grace, highly favored, I am a vessel of God. That, and the more the Holy Spirit has control of this vessel, the more like God I will be. Now, I'm not espousing that we're going to, a Mormon doctrine, we're going to be God, become gods. Uh, but rather, we are going to partake of, and we're going to examine this a little bit more, I think, probably, but be our partaker of his divine nature. I can actually get to that point. And I am confident that what he's referring to there, being partaker of his divine nature, goes back to the glory and virtue. You can share in his glory. You can share in his virtue. And that's why Paul says, listen, I want to fill up the sufferings of Christ by my own sufferings. What are you doing? You are partaking of the glory and virtue of Christ. He suffered for our salvation. We're not suffering to save them. We are perfecting, completing his suffering by ours. We are partaking in his nature. That I am willing to be an agent of peace and a vessel of his kingdom. I want grace and peace multiplied in your life. This is Peter's words. I want you to go from righteousness to righteousness to godliness. I want you to go from a, a rudimentary knowledge where he's at least Lord to a, a knowledge where you partake of the divine nature. Wow. Can we do that? Yes. Why doesn't it happen more? Because you're too distracted. Frankly, you have more knowledge of this world than you have of the one to come. You are more captivated by knowledge of this world, of mankind and nations and laws and governments, than you are about Christ's kingdom and his life. So we keep increasing our knowledge of how economies work and how governments work and how strategies of war are and how, and whether it's historical, how uh, devices work, whether they be mechanical or otherwise. We're more knowledgeable about those kind of things that do not make us partakers of Christ's nature than we are curious at all about those things that will make us participants of God of the nature of divine. And this is what Christ calls us to. This is what Peter desires for us. We have the power. It has been given to us. We are the highly favored ones. You have God's word on your lap, in your life, in your own language, that you can engage. The Spirit is within you to enable you to do that. You have teachers around you that will help direct their, that pursuit. The problem is, are you pursuing it? Are we pursuing the knowledge of God? I want to know more. But I find that the trend in church today is to pursue them less. We're not meeting more often, we're meeting less often. And that doesn't, even pre-pandemic, Hysteria. We are meeting less and less and less and less, spending less and less and less time in church 
around God's word with his people being taught because we are less and less interested in pursuing the knowledge of God that enables us to be partakers of his divine nature. To discover what it's like to be, not just to do, the glory and virtue of Christ. Pursuing this kind of knowledge demands something of us. In cooperation with the divine power that God has graced us with. Let us recommit ourselves. When we think of grace and peace be multiplied to you as less of a nice greeting to more of a challenge. Let's pray. Lord God, we do thank you for your love for us. We thank you again for your word, your spirit, for all that you have accomplished, the righteousness of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Lord, we speak it with our words, with our lips, um, but Lord, if our hearts are far from you, we know that it means nothing. You've offered us a wondrous thing through your promises that we can really participate, be partakers of your divine nature. Lord, help us to recommit ourselves in at least these two areas, as well as the two to come, that we might truly be like you. Not just doing the things you call us to do, not just righteous in our walk, but desiring after you with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength, defining ourselves as children of God. We thank you for all you have given us to enable that. We pray that you might continue to have your spirit work in us through your word to your glory. In Christ Jesus' name, amen.